Welcome to Module 20 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. Recall we're examining what are known as substantive errors, that is, judicial review on substantive grounds. And recall also our focus has been on the what of the decision, or as the Supreme Court says in Vavilov, the merits of the decision. Any allegation that a delegate made a substantive error on the merits requires you to resolve two primordial questions. First, when will the court show deference? And second, what does deference mean in practice? And so our focus in the last few modules has been on how Vavilov answers these questions. First, it's test for standard of review, that is deciding how much deference applies. And second, it's approach to what deference means in practice. That is, what does the reasonableness standard of review really mean? In those discussions, we've also talked about a few off-ramps from Vavilov, some exceptional circumstances where at least some of the analysis of the merits is a little bit different. I've specifically pointed to two instances where some other Supreme Court case law sets the applicable rules. First, statutory rights of appeals to courts, and second, the so-called Dore exception, where at issue is the application in the exercise of discretion of so-called charter values. These are leftovers from our discussion of Vavilov, and I kept punting them from the discussion in the last modules. And so in this module, the time has come finally to focus on them, and we shall do so in sequence, starting first with statutory rights of appeal, and then second with the Dore exception. And so, statutory right of appeal to courts. Recall in the module where we discussed the Vavilov test for determining the standard of review that one of the off-ramps from reasonableness was where the legislature prescribes a different standard of review. And that happens in two ways. Either the legislature specifies a different standard of review in the statute, or secondly, the legislature creates a statutory right of appeal from the delegate to a court. With situation number one, that is where the standard review is prescribed in the statute, the standard review to be applied is whatever is set out in the statute. With situation two, the standard review is determined by its own test, namely the 2002 decision of the Supreme Court in Hussein versus Nicholson. This case concerned the standards of review that appellate courts will apply on appeals from lower courts and it has been adopted into the administrative law context by Vavilov in relation to those statutory rights of appeal that go from an administrative body to a court. Now, the Hussein approach is not difficult to summarize, and indeed the Supreme Court did so in Vavilov itself. Where a court is hearing an appeal from an administrative decision, it would, in considering questions of law, including questions of statutory interpretation and those concerning the scope of a decision-maker's authority, apply the standard of a correctness in accordance with Hussein. Where the scope of the statutory appeal includes questions of fact, the appellate standard of review for those questions is palpable and overriding error, as it is for questions of mixed fact and law where the legal principle is not readily extricable. So Hussein basically creates a binary test dependent on the nature of the question on appeal. For questions of law, you apply the standard of correctness. On questions of fact or questions where the factual issues are so intertwined with legal issues they can't be disaggregated, 
you apply palpable and overriding error. Now, correctness, as is the case for all our discussions so far on standard review, is clearly a non-deferential standard. As we've said repeatedly in other modules, applying correctness means a court is free to replace the opinion of the entity being reviewed with its own opinion. Palpable and overriding error in comparison is clearly a deferential standard. It is generous towards the fact-finding of the delegate and will not rush to disturb that fact-finding. What does that mean? Well, according to the Supreme Court's dictionary, palpable means clear to the mind or plain to see or so obvious that it can easily be seen or known. Overriding is not so precisely defined in the Hussein case, but the Ontario Court of Appeal in a case called Waxman, which has been adopted by other jurisdictions in Canada as well, it discussed the concept of overriding in this way. An error that is sufficiently significant to vitiate the challenged finding of fact. Where the challenged finding of fact is based on a constellation of findings, the conclusion that one or more of those findings is founded on a palpable error does not automatically mean the error is also overriding. The appellate must demonstrate that the error goes to the root of the challenged finding of fact, such the fact cannot safely stand in the face of that error. That's a bit of a mouthful, but what it, what it really means is that the error must be serious enough to cancel the factual conclusion reached by the decision maker. So let me give you an example involving a denial of a security clearance. Let's assume that the decision maker said this. The applicant was 21 at the time they applied. They had a criminal record involving crimes of violence, and they had recently been charged for shoplifting. They have therefore exhibited tendencies that, in my view, raise questions about their suitability for a security clearance. Now, let's assume the applicant was, in fact, 22, not 21. Is this a palpable error? Well, yes, the age of someone can usually be authoritatively determined, and an error on this issue is clear. It's palpable. But is the error overriding? Well, no, the age has no logical connection to the ultimate conclusion of fact, or more particularly, mixed fact in law, concerning suitability for a security clearance. Even if a correct age had been recorded, the finding on the security clearance would remain the same. The, the age had no bearing on the ultimate conclusion. It wasn't overriding in that sense. But what if the factual error was different in my hypothetical? What if the factual error was made in relation to the finding on criminal record? Turns out the applicant had no criminal record, and that was palpable. The record clearly showed that the applicant had no criminal record. Well, this is a good candidate for a finding of fact that is overriding. It's palpable. Record showed they had no criminal record. It's overriding because it goes to the heart of the finding by the decision maker about suitability for a security clearance. If you remove this factual error, would the outcome have been the same? Probably not. And so this seems, again, a good candidate for a palpable and overriding error. Now, before we leave this question of statutory rights of appeal and the standards of review on them, a footnote. This is a statutory right of appeal to a court. That's where this test, this binary test of palpable and overriding error versus correctness applies. There are, however, often statutory rights of appeal between administrative bodies, from a lower decision maker that's an administrative delegate to a higher decision maker who's an administrative delegate. Do not assume that this Hussein test applies there. 
most likely where there's an internal statutory right of appeal, whatever standard applies will be clear from the statutory framework that guides that appeal. Okay, moving on then to our second leftover, the Dory exception. The infamous Dory exception was first articulated by the Supreme Court in 2012 in a case which, as you may surmise, was called Dore. It was then re-explained and debated thereafter, most notably in Law Society of BC versus Trinity Western University, a case from 2018. So let's remember what Vavilov says about this Dore test. Remember that the second off-ramp from reasonableness is where the rule of law requires, and that generally the rule of law requires correctness when a constitutional issue is being decided. But not all constitutional issues are equal. As the Supreme Court says in Vavilov, it is important to draw a distinction between cases in which it is alleged that the effect of the administrative decision being reviewed is to unjustifiably limit rights under the Charter, as was the case in Dore, and those in which at issue on review is whether a provision of the decision-maker's enabling statute violates the Charter. Our jurisprudence holds that an administrative decision-maker's interpretation of the latter issue, that is, whether the enabling statute violates the Charter, should be reviewed for correctness, and that jurisprudence is not displaced by these reasons. So, to summarize, when the issue before the decision-maker is this, is a given statutory provision unconstitutional, under the Charter or otherwise, the standard of review will be correctness. But if the issue before the decision-maker involves instead whether in exercising their discretion, typically under a power delegated by statute, they should have paid more attention and more heed to a charter right implicated by the exercise of that discretion, there the standard of review reverts to reasonableness. So let me give you an example to make that more concrete. There is a statute called the International Transfer of Offenders Act that permits a Canadian incarcerated overseas, most typically in the United States, to apply to serve their remaining time in a Canadian prison. The Minister of Public Safety exercises discretion, somewhat fettered, in authorizing or not this transfer, assuming U.S. authorities also agree. Now let's assume, hypothetically, that the International Transfer of Offenders Act read, this act does not apply to a person who has been out of Canada for more than five years. The applicant argues that this provision in the statute violates his Charter Section 6 mobility rights, which, as you recall, allow any person who is a Canadian citizen to re-enter the country. The minister says it does not. On judicial review, what will the standard of review be? Pause. Correctness. At issue is the constitutionality of a statutory provision. The applicant will bear the burden of showing a violation of Section 6, while the government will bear the burden of meeting the Section 1 justification. And recall, Section 1 specifies that all charter rights are guaranteed, but subject to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And you'll also recall from your constitutional law studies that there's a complex test that the Supreme Court has articulated, namely the Oaks test, that sets out what has to be met to satisfy Section 1. And under that test, Section 1 may save a rights-impairing measure where the government proves that the measure has an important objective, that there's a rational connection between the objective and the means, and that there's a minimal impairment of the right in question, and also that there is a proportionality between the impact on the right and the benefits of the measure in question. Now, 
let's talk about a different scenario. There is nothing in the statute. This time the minister simply says, I am not going to approve your transfer because you've been outside of Canada for five years and that means you don't get to come back to Canada. Well, at issue is the exercise of the minister's discretion to approve the transfer. In the course of exercising that discretion, the minister has either ignored or discounted the Section 6 entitlement or construed it in some puzzling manner to expire after five years of absence. On judicial review of this decision, what will the standard of review be? Well, here the Dory exception would apply and the standard of review would be reasonableness. This is the exercise of discretion during which the expectation should be that the minister would contemplate the impact of their decision on a charter right. Your argument is that they didn't or didn't do so properly on judicial review, whether the minister acted properly or not on the merits would be assessed on a reasonableness standard. Now, the majority of the Supreme Court in Dory and in the follow-on cases like Trinity Western University would say that this is an example of the minister being obliged to make a decision in circumstances that engaged what the Supreme Court called charter values. Now, the Supreme Court at various times has offered a defense of this concept of charter values, but I've never been persuaded about the merits of talking about values versus rights. And I think the concept of charter values is roughly the equivalent of an appendix that is the organ in your body that really serves no discernible purpose, but blows up every once in a while in a manner that causes ill health. It may be fodder for interesting academic debates, but it's really not that useful for holding governments to account. Now, ironically, the majority in Trinity Western University, having defended the concept of charter values, itself quickly drifts into talking about charter protections. So functionally, what we're talking about here, and this is a point made by some of the judges in the Trinity Western University minority, is nothing short than charter rights, and in particular charter rights that are engaged by the nature of the discretionary decision made by the delegate. So if you have that kind of situation, like the example I gave you involving the Section 6 entitlement, you need to apply reasonableness, which the Dory proponents insist constitutes a robust proportionality analysis not the full Section 1 analysis, but something that accomplishes at least the proportionality components of the Section 1 test. This is not a view that's been warmly embraced by, well, the minority judges in the Trinity Western University or many critics in academia and in the profession, but it is the law of the land. And while debate is now engaged on whether Vavilov somehow implicitly shifts an understanding of Dore, this is a question that will need to await further resolution by the Supreme Court. So for our purposes, I'm just going to raise two last issues. Recall that if this were a regular Section 1 situation, the government would bear the burden of proof. So it stands to reason that if the reasonableness analysis under Dore is a stand-in for the Section 1 analysis, the government should bear the onus of demonstrating reasonableness when Dore arises. This is the stated position of a minority in the Trinity Western University case, but frankly, the Supreme Court has never articulated a position on this point in a majority decision. Second, what does reasonableness mean under Dore? Does it mean the same thing as is now set out in Vavilov? Well, in Trinity Western University, a case that predated Vavilov, the Supreme Court discusses reasonableness as embracing a requirement to consider 
whether there were other reasonable possibilities that would give effect to charter protections more fully in light of the objectives that are part of the statutory framework. And so in other words, were there other steps reasonably open to the decision maker that would have reduced the impact on the protected right while still permitting the decision maker to meet the statutory objectives? That's not a definition of reasonableness that's inconsistent with Vavilov, but nor does it have that amplification that we find in Vavilov, that list of what I call tools, uh, indicia of reasonableness. Personally, I don't think in the end there'll be any difference between the type of reasonableness that one applies in the Dory context versus the sort of reasonableness at issue under the regular Vavilov approach. At the end of the day, the scenario I gave you where the minister simply refused to consider the Section 6 implications of their decision and superimpose some artificial bar on re-entry after five years, that's the sort of thing that a court almost certainly would conclude is unreasonable. There's no balancing. In fact, there's no consideration of Section 6 interests in light of the statutory mandate at all. There's just a blanket exclusion of the person predicated on some bizarre time-limiting fetter that does not exist anywhere in statutory law and is deeply inconsistent with Section 6. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about leftovers from Vavilov. I think we've got good coverage now on substantive review, on the merits, and the Vavilov test, and the remaining relevant jurisprudence in areas like Dore and the Hussein case. We have one last thing to do, however, before we can depart this conversation about substantive review a mini capstone module proposing how you might pull some of these considerations we have been discussing together in something of a decision tree. That is our next topic. Until then, this ends module 20.